Well, hello and welcome to Catalyst Online. My name is Dave. I'm the senior pastor here at Catalyst. I want to welcome all of you who are logging in here in Nicholsville, Lexington, Central Kentucky, as well as all the people that are logging in from around the nation and around the world. We appreciate you being here with us. Uh, we are in a series called Making the Adventure personal. And this is part three, it, and it is the relationship adventure, trusting God through dating and marriage. So when I was in youth ministry, I, uh, one of my favorite things to do was work a week out at Bluegrass Christian Camp. And one of the things I was always stuck with was the dating marriage class. And in this class, we always had one day where we would allow the students to write in anonymous questions and turn them in, and I would answer every one of them um, w- within reason. And believe me, they asked everything. And one uh, in particular question has always stuck out to me. The question was, why do adults say we aren't ready to be in love? Do you think we are old enough to be in love? Um, And I answered, I said, of course, you're fully capable of being in love. You are fully capable of that. I said, what you are not capable of is commitment, and I got a bunch of blank stares, and I, and, I, and I continued. I said, not a single one of you is ready to commit to a lifetime, to one person for life, to provide financially for your home, to do the incredibly hard work of raising children, uh, to dedicate your life to a person that will be with you for your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, the grandparent thing, all of that. Is anyone in here ready to do that? A bunch of blank stares and a bunch of no's. And, uh, and, I, and I said, you're perfectly capable of the emotion of love. Yes, you are. But you're not, uh, 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 you're not capable of committing at this time. I said, the emotion of being in love, if that was all it took, then the, mer- the divorce rate would be zero. As a matter of fact, if the emotion of love was all that it took, <laughs> then none of your middle school and high school friends would ever break up, Okay. Uh, what's the breakup rate in middle school and high school? And they got a bunch of laughs, uh, about 100%. I said, yeah, but that's what our world is saying, that you, all you need to do is feel like you're in love. And, within the, uh, uh, and, and, and it's just crazy how bad we are at this. And I said, this has always stuck out in my mind because these were kids that, uh, uh, and, and I guess all of us were this way, that were woefully unprepared for the biggest decision apart from following Christ, that will ever make. The person that you date or marry will determine the course of your life more than anything else. And so uh, other than the decision to follow Christ, the decision of who you date and marry is the biggest decision you will make. The main thing today is choose wisely because who you date slash marry will determine the course of your life. So do we trust God enough to apply his word to dating and marriage? See, there's a big, big difference between dating and marriage. Our culture doesn't know that. Our culture doesn't understand that. They think that dating and marriage is the same thing. That's why um, uh, we, have, we are so messed up, but there's a boundary between dating and marriage, and this is it. I want everybody to hear this. If you're dating, if you're whatever, boyfriends do not get husband privileges. Girlfriends do not get wife privileges. They are separate. If you are a boyfriend, you are not a husband. If you are a girlfriend, you are not a wife. Do not mix the two. See, our culture has destroyed the barrier between the two, completely destroyed it. We have boyfriends that are, that, that are being treated like husbands. Uh, We have girlfriends being treated like wives. No, they are separate. The boyfriend is a stage. The girlfriend is a stage 
before marriage. Kind of like we don't send a, 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 a person that has not gone through basic training, a new recruit, out to the battlefield. Why do they get slaughtered? We don't send a person without a pilot's license who's putting their first, sitting in the cockpit for the first time. We don't send them out to fly a 737 full of people. Why? Because they are not ready for it yet. There's going to be a disaster. In the same way, we don't say, tell boyfriends they have husband privileges. We don't have, tell girlfriends they have wife privileges. That is a separate stage. Our cultures totally destroy the boundary between the two, between, between dating and marriage. And it's time that we in the church reclaim this. It's time that we in the church cast a different vision for dating and marriage than what the world knows. Okay, so it's, it, and there are three factors that God wants us to consider and to apply when we are uh, trying to decide who we're going to date in marriage. The first factor is this, the faith factor. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says this, Do not be uh, yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Um, one of the best uh, uh, songs from 2017 was Grenade by Bruno Mars, and he says this, I'd catch a grenade for you, throw my hand on a blade for you, I'd jump in front of a train for you, I would do anything for you, I would go through all this pain, take a bullet straight through my brain, yes, I would die for you, babe, but you won't do the same. The song basically tells how dedicated he is to his lady friend, and she does not share his same affections. And uh, this dysfunctional relationship is known as being unequally yoked. One is committed more than the other. Okay, basically what it means is that, uh, is that uh, it's very, very dysfunctional and a lot of us are in that. Someone's gonna get hurt badly. And as I listened to poor Bruno sing the blues here, I thought about how uh, unequally, how Paul talks about being unequally yoked in marriage, a Christian with non-Christian. Um, and, uh, and the question I always get is, can a Christian date a non-Christian? Can, should a Christian marry a non-Christian? The answer is absolutely not. And whenever I say that, I always get accusations of being bigoted or, or being hateful. No, no, not that at all. Um, it's the, the Christian concept of only dating Christians is not bigoted or judgmental. Far from it. God doesn't want you to hate anyone or exclude anyone. Um, the, 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 can, can a Christian and non-Christian respect each other? Yes. Can they love each other? Yes, they can. It's just that any relationship where people are unequally yoked is heading for trouble. Um, uh, because everyone is moving towards something in their life. They're moving towards what they believe to be most important. And a Christian is moving one way. If a Christian uh, is a Christian, that God is the number one thing in their life. They're moving towards that. A non-believer does not have that. They're moving towards something else. Okay, And they grow apart. Um, a, a, uh, a, 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 practically, when you are unequally yoked, what do you do when it comes to money? See, a Christian uh, uh, says that I should tithe, I should give to my church. Well, a non-believer may want that 10% to go to savings or to debt or something like that, debt reduction. There are going to be conflicts over money there. Um, there will be issues over when you have children. Uh, do we raise them in the faith? Do we not? Do we take family vacations uh, to, to go to, on a mission trip or do we not? Um, what about Sunday morning sports? If, a, um, if the kid has a game on Sunday morning, the Christian says we should go to church. The non-Christian says no, we should, we should, it's part of a team needs to be part of the team. See, there are all kinds of conflicts when you're moving in different directions, okay? Lots of different, lots of different areas like that. And if you don't share the same faith commitments, you're going to set yourself up for conflict. That's why God says, I don't want you to be unequally yoked with unbelievers because I want you to, to, to have a conflict, uh, 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 not conflict-free, but as little conflict as possible. You do, if you're not connected on the deepest level possible, which is the faith level, then you're going to have a tough time. 
You're going to have a tough time. And I'm telling you, do this. Marriage is tough enough when you share the same commitments. It's, it, 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 it's, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult if you don't share those same commitments. And that's why um, uh, God wants you to marry only, date and marry only Christians if you're a Christian. How many of you have heard the statistic that 50% of marriages end in divorce? Yeah, yeah, a lot of us have heard that. Do you know that that's not true? Um, in, in, the, in the book, um, uh, The Good News About Marriage, Harvard researcher Shanati Feldhahn uh, said that 50% was an estimation based on what researchers thought would happen when states passed no divorce, no fault divorce laws. That's what, that was thrown out. It was a model. It was an, it was an estimation. She wrote, we have never even gotten close. The overall divorce rate is 33%. And then she said something very interesting. Remember, this is not a faith-based thing. This is a Harvard researcher here. Said this, that active conservative Protestants who attend church regularly, who have married within their faith and they attend church regularly, are 35% less likely to divorce than those with no religious preferences. Married couples who attend church every week have less than a 5% chance of getting divorced. Why is that? Well, it's very clear. First of all, God blesses marriage done his way. Second, um, you, sh you are connected and deeply uh, connected at the very fundamental level of faith. And third, that when you are a Christian, you depend on God for a lot of things. You don't put that pressure on your spouse. Okay? So there are a lot of reasons why that is. But if, but the statistics, the secular statistics show that when you marry within your faith, when you, with Christian faith, and you are faithful in church and faithful with your religious duties, 5% or less divorce rate. So that's why the first thing, we have to have the faith factor. That's what God says. The second, we need the family factor. Family factor. Uh, this is really interesting. Uh, you, when you marry someone, you don't just marry them. You marry their family. Okay, and if you do not co, if you don't gel with their family, there's going to be a tough, tough time. I'm going to take you to a little-known part of the, a well-known story in the Old Testament. Um, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 26, verse 34. There were two brothers, Jacob and Esau. They're famous, um, and and uh, finally, the reason I like this. This story is that finally the younger brother wins. I'm a younger brother. I've got an older brother. And the older brother, those of us that are younger brothers, you older brothers, we know you guys do better in life. You guys are, are in, by and large, taller than us. You are smarter than us. You are uh, CEOs of corporations, 40 of the four, four, uh, 45 presidents have been firstborns. We get it. We get it. You guys are it. And that's why we love it when Jacob gets the better of Esau because it's awesome. All the secondborns are cheering. Yes. I, I, now he had to get, in order to do that, he had to cheat, lie, steal, and almost get killed. But we, we, don't, we don't worry about that. Um, but uh, Esau's the older brother. Jacob is the younger brother. One of the most famous episodes in life is when Esau gets Jacob, uh, Jacob gets Esau to hand over his birthright for a bowl of stew. Later on, though, something bigger happens. Jacob, under the advice of his mother, Rebekah, remember this, this is Rebekah that did this, um, deceives his father, Isaac, into giving him Esau's blessing. This wasn't just a prayer. This was a commissioning. This was a passing on of the leadership of the family. You were going to be it. This was a commissioning uh, of, of, that was supposed to be for the firstborn. It was Esau's by birthright by law. And it's a fascinating story found in Genesis chapter 26, verse 27. Now, this is, why did Rebecca do this? Why did Rebecca tell her younger son to, to go uh, 
to scheme and to steal and to take the birthright away from Esau. Well, I never knew this until I studied for this message. It's all because of who Esau married. Get this, Genesis chapter 27, verse 46. Um, I, I take that back, uh, back up a little bit. Genesis 26, 34 through 35. When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, daughter of Biri, the Hittite, and also Basimath, daughter of Elon, the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. So that was the beginning of the story. We're, I'm gonna, um, and, and there's a, a uh, Jewish a literary thing called bookending, where you see it all over the Bible, where there will be a, 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 an introduction, and then a story, and then a, another reference to the beginning story. It seems like they have nothing in common. Um, for example, when Jesus was going to the temple, it said that he saw a fig tree, and he wanted to eat some figs, and it wasn't producing any figs. There's no fruit, so he cursed it. And then he goes and he clears out the temple. And then when they, when they uh, are leaving the temple, there's a reference. They see the fig tree is withered. And you're thinking, why in the world did Jesus curse a fig tree? What is that? Well, this was a Jewish literary tactic. And it was a, a, these two bookends deal with the story in there. The fig tree was a reference to the temple. It was producing no fruit. And after Jesus cleared it out, it was cursed. So that, that was a, a, a bookending. Well, we see that here as well. We see a reference to uh, Esau's marriages to these, that, that these, these women were a, were a source of grief to the parents. And then we see the story of Jacob's deception. And then after the story, it says this in Genesis 27, 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I am disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from the Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Okay, so we see the two references to the marriages and we see the deception in there. So in other words, these two have something to do with it. All right, so um, in, the, in, in the same way, we see this. Um, if you want to marry someone, you marry their family. And what was happening, Rebecca was so grieved by the marriages of Esau. She said, I don't want leadership of the family going to these people. I don't want the leadership of the family going to someone that married these people. So, he, so she told Jacob to go take the blessing, to take the birthright and marry someone else who would be a person of integrity. That is how important it is, okay? Listen to your family. Listen to your family. When, when, uh, when you marry the person, you marry the family. The, the family has lived with you for a while. Uh, they know you. They know how you react to things. Sometimes they know you better than you know yourself. And if, you list, if the person that you are dating, they don't like them, listen to that, Okay, and we're not talking about dysfunctional, toxic people who, uh, who don't know what they're talking about. I'm talking about normal families like most people have. Listen to your family. Also listen to their family. There's a saying, the apple doesn't fall from the tree. Fall, far, fall, fall far from the tree. That is very true. Um, when we are dating, we tend to put our best foot forward. We tend to uh, clean up more than we normally do. We tend to have more manners than we normally are. We put our best foot forward. And so in dating, a lot of times, we're seeing an untrue picture of the person we're dating. Well, look at their family. Look where they come from. Okay? That is, a, that is very, very, very wise. Um, and, and so I, I, I've, I've had far too many counseling sessions with people who have not listened to their families. 
by dating and marrying the wrong people, Esau lost the blessing of his family. And I've seen that so many times. Um, I was, a young woman several years ago contacted me and told me about her situation. She was pregnant. She was newly married. Her husband was abusive. She had left him and she had nowhere to go. And I asked, uh, is, there, is there a way uh, maybe you go back home to mom and dad? And she said, well, uh, dad had warned her about this guy and got mad when she married him anyway. And she didn't think she could face her parents and say that she was wrong. There's all types of issues there. It was so heartbreaking. It was so heartbreaking. Listen to your family. Listen to their family. There's a reason the story of Jacob and Esau is in the Bible. And that's because we're supposed to learn from it. If you're dating someone, your family doesn't like them, listen to it. The third factor, uh, the faith factor, the family factor, make sure your family's gel. The third is a life goal factor. Philippians 3, 13 through 15. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The third factor is the destination goal. The Apostle Paul wrote this famous message. Now, I press on to the goal to win the prize which Jesus, God has called me heavenward. He's talking about eternal life. He's talking about winning the race. That's the ultimate goal for the believer in Christ. But uh, it, it's also about things in life. Who you date and marry is the, biggest, is, is the biggest factor as to whether you accomplish it. Or is more than just the eternal life goal. Do you share the same life goals? Do you agree on career paths? If one of you wants to be a Hollywood actor and the other one wants to be a Nashville session musician, you're probably going to have a problem. Okay, uh, if, if one of you wants to be a stay-at-home parent, the other person expects you to, to work and so they can live at a certain income, we could have a problem. If one of you wants children and one of them doesn't, uh, we could have a problem. Are you both moving in the same direction? Do you have the same life goals, right? Most marriages don't end with an explosion. They end with a whimper. Most people don't have some major issue. It, it's, it's, they simply grow apart because they have different life goals. You need far more than the emotion of love to make marriage, dating work. You, need, you, can, you can be romantically turned on all you want, but you need these three factors, the faith factor, the family factor, and the life goal factor if we're going to make it work. These are important to have in place for dating, but they're also important to invest in these things in marriage. Married people, the faith factor, are you inv actively investing not only in your personal faith, but in the faith of your spouse? Are you encouraging them to grow closer to Jesus? Are you, are, are, are you doing that? Um, are you actively investing in the family factor? You who are married, are you making peace with your in-laws? Are you showing them respect? Are you uh, making sure that, uh, that your, your spouse doesn't feel caught in a tug of war between you and your parents? Um, are, are you actively investing in life goals? Are, are not just your own, but your spouse's life goals? Are you encouraging them to do what God put them on this earth to do? Those are the three things that, that not only are important in dating, they're important in marriage as well. These are the things that God wants for our relationships. We've tried it the world's way, you guys. We've tried it the world's way, and it has left us uh, bankrupt and sorely lacking. Do we have faith in God to trust God in this area of our lives. 
Well, God's word also tells us the number one thing to look out for in dating and marriage. His, his, his word screams it from the pages to look out for this. And it, it, it will destroy our dating and our marriage relationships. I call it the relationship killer, and it is selfishness. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. That's what God's word says, and that starts in the home. Scripture tells us to value our spouse above ourselves. Uh, uh, now, this can only work if both of you are practicing and this. It's not for just one person. If only one person is doing this, you are, you are a doormat. You're not, a, you're not doing what God wants you to do. All right, Both husband and wife must do this, must value the other. It is a Christian concept called mutual submission. But uh, this is the rule for both husband and wife. I love this quote. I don't know who came up with it, but I found it. And it said, marriage is two self-centered, sinful people committing to build a life together. What could possibly go wrong? And selfishness is the thing that will destroy your relationship adventure. Here are seven signs of selfishness to look out for in yourself and in your spouse that you guys need to get on, uh, uh, take care of because these will kill your marriage. Number one, you dominate the conversation. Proverbs ten nineteen says, when words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. If the conversation is always about you, if you are if you, at, a, at a party or social gathering, if you never let your spouse talk, if you're the one who dominates the conversation, you could be, uh, it's a sign that you have some selfishness in you. If you don't let the other, the other person get a word in edgewise. The second selfishness sign is that you're always right. You're always right. Proverbs 17, 12 says, better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool bent on folly. That is very true. If, if you are always right, you can never be wrong. You have selfishness, and that will kill your relationship. Number three, you are easily offended. If you are easily offended, if it, it takes nothing to get your anger up and, and, and to be, a, you have selfish issues. You have big selfishness issues, and you're going to wreck your marriage. Number, uh, Proverbs 12, 16 says, fools show their annoyance at once, but the wise overlook an insult. So if you show your annoyance at once, the Bible calls you a fool. The fourth one is that you get upset when others don't act like you think they should. You, if, if someone does something you don't think they should, if they treat you in a way you don't think they should, if they, they do something uh, uh, that, that, uh, a different way than you, than you think they should, you have selfishness issues. Um, um, possibly... Loading the dishwasher, you're supposed to do it the right way. Well, uh, how many arguments have, have, have we had over there? We're not going to get into that, but there are some selfish signs there. Uh, number five, uh, you can't celebrate the successes of others. If, if uh, successes of others threatens you personally, then you have selfishness issues. Okay, You need to be able to celebrate what the good fortune that happens to other people. Um, the sixth one is that your first thought is how things will affect you, not everybody else. Uh, whenever something happens, the first thing you think, how it's going to affect me, how it's going to affect my paycheck, how it's going to affect my life, how it's going to inconvenience me, you have selfish issues. All right, number seven, uh, you talk down to people who believe you're not equal with you. Um, Luke 14, 11, Jesus says this, for all who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. If you, if you rank people by social status, you treat people differently, you have selfish issues and those will destroy your relationships. 
On tax day, April 15th, I asked people on my Facebook page a simple question. I said, married folks, what is one thing you, will, you have done to invest in your marriage that you've seen good results from? I'm gonna read some of them right here because I wanna end this message with things that people are doing to invest in their relationships, to make things work. We've talked about what to avoid. Now we gotta talk about what people are doing and there's a lot of good stuff. Here are a few of them. We take a trip every three or four months no work phones, just the beach. After 30 years, we still hold hands, sit on the same side of the table where we go out to eat, never leave to go anywhere, and we don't get a, that we don't give a goodbye kiss. Uh, number three, we, we, we made it a point to laugh every day. During, uh, even during the cancer battle, we gave each other grace if one of us was having a stressful day. Next one, intentional involvement in small group marriage enrichment groups. Been married 43 years now. Uh, no, next one, we are intentional about making sure we get our time together daily. We are intentional about serving each other daily, not just taking each other for granted. Next one was, I pray to let go of my anger. Next one, we've been married 36 years, and by the, far the best thing for our marriage that we pray to, is that we pray together. Tur turning to our loving Father has brought great comfort through tears and has renewed our love for each other. Next one, very simple. We forgive each other. Next one, two years into our marriage, we made a commitment to love God first. That's the one constant that has never changed and made our marriage what it is 20 years later. Next one, we do the little things. Even when we are angry, he will make me tea. I will make him a meal. The next one, I pray for my spouse. I can't be upset with him after I've prayed for him. The next one, spend time together as a couple. Do something that doesn't include the kids so that when the kids are out of the house, you'll still have things in common. Very wise. Next one, know what you value in each other and let your spouse do those things. Your spouse needs to feel they're valued and needed. It's teamwork, not two self-sufficient people sharing a house. Next one, I saw someone holding a sign that said, just be kind. It's kindness. Next one, we face our problems together instead of against each other. Our problems are not against flesh and blood. The next one, uh, make, make a point to stop and say thank you for something the other person did or is doing, for even if it's something they're supposed to do. Thank you for making lunch. Thank you for taking out the trash. Thank you for bathing the baby. Thank you for going into the grocery store. The recognition and acknowledgement means a lot. Next one, walks, talks, drives, simple time together with no technology involved. The next one, prioritize our relationship with kids and commitments. We intentionally set aside time for each other. We are a team in front of the kids. Even if we think something needs to be handled differently, that's discussed privately. Wow. We were raised in, in the next one, we were raised in completely different environments. So one of the best things we've done is participate in Christian marriage seminars and studies to help us have the same tools. Very good. Next one, we realized when we were dating that we had different opinions when it came to money. We took Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University class and made sure we were on the same page. That has been a lifesaver. Next one, we committed early on to having a date night every month. We alternate who is responsible for planning it so it doesn't always fall on one person. I invite you to go to my Facebook page on April 15th of this year and read those um, because there, there are more. There's a lot of wisdom there. When I do weddings, you guys, I, I tell the couple that today God is handing you all a blank 
slate, a blank book. And he's saying, here, couple, write the story of your marriage. You two are the authors. You two are the authors. If you want your story to be wonderful, it will be. If you want it to be terrible, it will be because you two are the authors. If you want it to be full of love, it will be, because you two are the authors. If you want it to be full of pain, it will be, because you two are the authors. This is your story. Um, And the reason I want to tell you that, I tell that to couples when I do weddings, but I'm telling you that now, because right now is a time of stress. There's a lot of stress on our marriages right now. Domestic violence is up. Arguing is up right now, because uh, we're, we're all in tight quarters together, and it's a tough time. Just remember, this is a new chapter in your marriage story. This chapter. It's going to be pretty short, but it is a new chapter. Make sure that while you are writing this story, that you are doing a good job of authoring. Husbands, wives, make sure you are being kind to each other. Make sure that you you are writing a beautiful story during this time of stress. It's a blank page. It's a blank book. Right here is what you're writing. You're writing the story of your marriage. You are the authors. Make sure you're writing a good story. Like I said, if you want it to be full of pain, it will be because you're the author. You want it to be full of love, it will be because you're the authors. You want it to be joy-filled, you want it to be fun, you want it to be exciting, you want it to be dull or drab, it is up to you because you are the authors. Maybe what needs to happen right now is you need to take today and you need to look at your spouse and say, I am not your enemy and you are not mine. We've been doing a bad job of writing this story. We've we've been writing a bad story. I say we start a new chapter today and we start writing a good story because you too are the author's. Your marriage will be as wonderful or as terrible as you choose it to be. I'm asking you to have the amount of faith to put in God to follow what he says for marriage and allow him to throw open the floodgates of heaven to bless you abundantly. God bless you.